Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 42 of the Australian Hiker podcast, our first regular episode for October 2017, and today we're going to be talking about snakes, ticks and spiders on the trail. We're going to go through and look at uh, the issues or the problems uh, that we can have with each of these types of creatures, how to go through and avoid them if possible, and worst case situation, if we do get bitten uh, by one of these creatures, what the process and, and procedures are for it. In today's episode, we're also going to be introducing the first of our new segments, and that is Hiker News. Hiker News is going to be run once a month, approximately every two episodes, and we're going to go through and cover news from the trail that impacts us on as hikers uh, in both Australia and overseas to see what's happening in the world of hiking. We hope you enjoy. Now, the first of our uh, creatures on the trail we're going to talk about is snakes. And if you talk to most people when they first start out hiking, one of their biggest fears is coming across snakes on the trail. Now, while we need to be aware of snakes and show them respect, the chance of getting bitten is relatively low. Now, in June 2017, the Australian Snake Bite Project was released, uh, and this was a peer-reviewed uh, uh, medical research on the incidence of snake bites between 2005 and 2015. And what it concluded that was on average, two people a year die from being bitten by snakes. Now, this includes not just hikers, but all Australians. And it also includes people who handle snakes for a living. Uh, so what the, what the study showed was that only 11% of bites occurred in bushland. And from a hiker's perspective, this is a relatively low number, but still without getting overly worried about it, it's still something to keep in mind. Unsurprisingly, or surprisingly enough, 14% of, the, uh, of snake bites occurred by people trying to catch or kill a snake. And again, as I said, this, this figure included snake handlers, but it, it often surprises me the number of people who will try and uh, kill a snake because it approaches them. Uh, and, uh, and the unfortunate thing here is that if you present a, a threat to a snake, it's likely to have a go at you and, and, and bite you. Uh, so again, this accounted for a certain number of bites that, uh, that, that did show up during this period of the study. Now, when you think about snakes, most people think uh, or, or consider that snakes are out to get them, that you know, as soon as they see a snake, they're going to come and, come and go for them and try and bite them. So when you think about it, snakes which are cold-blooded, particularly in the southern parts of Australia, uh, you're not really going to go through and see them during the cooler months of the year. It's only now, as the weather's starting to warm up, that you start getting more snake activity on the trail. And over the last three to four weeks, uh, we're now in sort of mid-October or early to mid-October, the snakes have really started to be, be out and about in the southern, southern states of Australia. And that's really because they're trying to warm up. Often the trail is the most open part of the bushland. Um, often it's um, perhaps a little bit drier, sunnier, 
and it just happens to be where you're walking. Um, so really what it comes down to, or really, really what you've got to think of is, is watch where you're going. And that's probably a, a, a good overall thing as we, as we get into discussion on snakes. Now, what the study showed, that uh, 73% of snake bites can be attributed to just to three species. And this is the brown snake, which is 41%, the tiger snake at 16%, and the red-bellied black snake at 16%. Now, from a fatality point of view, brown snakes and tiger snakes really do take it, uh, make up the, the bulk of the, uh, the, the deaths in this sort of uh, case. Red-bellied black snakes normally aren't known for being lethal to humans, although they are certainly going to make you very sick, or if you have pre-existing medical conditions, they are going to cause you problems. Now, while each of these snakes has their own personality, uh, and it's often very distinct, um, the appearance and behaviours of snakes, sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. Just because a snake is very dark in colour or black in colour doesn't necessarily mean it's a black snake. Some... um, Brown snakes can be very dark in coloration. Some tiger snakes can lack the banding that often gives them their name. So really it's a matter of, you know, you can't really determine in most cases, unless you're an expert, that these snakes are going to be lethal to you. So you're best off assuming that a snake is dangerous, leaving it well alone, uh, and and don't try and, uh, uh, and, and chase it down. Now, How do snakes actually view us when they come across us on the trail? Typically, snakes aren't going to consider us food. We're just a bit too big for them. They will usually not attack us uh, unless they're cornered or in the unfortunate circumstance where you've accidentally trodden on them. Uh, And in most cases, they'll try and get out of the way. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Um, In March of last year, uh, Jill and I were walking in the Bimbury Wilderness just outside of Canberra, very remote area, very uh, wilderness type of area. Uh, And I was walking behind Jill and she disturbed a brown snake that was sleeping on the trail. Uh, And the the first thing I knew about it was it was slithering across my feet. So um, I... uh, uh, yeah, you know, I could feel something going across my feet. I saw the brown, the the back end of the the snake disappearing, and it definitely was a brown snake. Uh, and again, I just stopped moving, and and it it just wanted to get away from me. So it's it's the sort of thing that um, it's not always, or you won't always expect certain behaviour. Uh, so yeah, you know, as I said, snakes will usually try and get away from you rather than trying to attack. Now, snakes have excellent eyesight, and this is one of their main senses. The other one is their sense of smell, and it's not by their nostrils, it's actually by their tongue. So when you see snakes poking their tongue out, uh, it's, it's to do with their sense and to see what's actually in the air or, or, or sense what's in the air. One of the things you'll often hear is snakes actually uh, feel vibra- vibrations, so we'll hear us coming across the trail. They do actually feel, vi- feel the vibrations there, but it's not a particularly good sense as far as snakes are concerned. Um, again, I give an example of a walk uh, in the Bimbury Wilderness uh, just before Christmas last year. We'd had quite a lot of rain. The ground was very soft. I was in an area where the ground was quite wet, uh, and I came across about four or five black, red-bellied black snakes um, and in most cases, the snakes weren't even aware I was there. They, were, they had their heads into a bush or in the grass looking for food. Uh, and I had one instance where I stopped, 
uh, I was about to get my hiking pole out. The snake stuck its head up, um, saw me, then shot off. Uh, but in a, in a number of other instances, the snakes didn't even move, didn't even seem to know I was there, even though I was quite large and heavy as I was approaching them. Now, just to clarify, you weren't going to get your, your hiking pole out to strike the snake. <laughs> you just happened to be deciding at that moment you were going to get your hiking pole out. <laughs> well, at, at this this one particular instance, I was it, was it was in the middle of the trail. It was fairly grassy and overgrown, and I thought, well... I've got really nowhere to go, so I was going to get my hiking pole out just to tap on the ground to see if I could make the snake aware that I was there, uh, because unfortunately there was nowhere really to go. I could go back, but I really needed to go forward at the time. Um, so it's the sort of thing that um, uh, we've, if you come across a snake sleeping on the trail, it may not have actually heard you approaching. Uh, it might be a bit different if it's very dry. Uh, the soil is very hard and it, it, it may hear you approaching. But I have seen instances where the snakes, we've gotten very close to the snake and it just hasn't moved. Uh, so again, tapping on the ground uh, when you're a, a few metres away from it may be enough to wake it up and get it to move on. Now, what should you do if you encounter a snake? Essentially, stop is the first thing. See what see if it, what the snake is doing uh, or was trying to do. And if it's trying to move on, just let it go. Once you've determined its action, move away slowly, preferably in the opposite direction, and allow the snake to move on. Never try to kill or handle a snake. Uh, and apart from uh, being illegal in most states to harm or kill snakes, uh, it's, uh, this is where a fair number of bites actually occur, where people have tried to grab snakes uh, 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 or to try and kill them. Uh, they've missed and the snakes ended up biting them. Pay attention. Uh, scan the trail ahead of you and don't assume just because something looks like a stick it actually is. And as far as paying attention is concerned, uh, some of the areas we tend to cross over or, or hike in have, have a number of large fallen trees on the trail. And really what you should be doing in this instance is stepping onto the log or looking over the log before you actually step over it. If you just step over and don't see where you're putting your foot, there could be a snake curled up uh, sleeping, which you might tread on. All right. Don't hike in shorts in areas where snakes are well known. Now, it's been a number of years since I've hiked in, um, in shorts, and it's purely personal preference. I know a lot of people do hike in shorts, but having worked outside for a lot of my life, um, I'm concerned about skin cancer, so I tend to wear long pants most of the time, and particularly because I am hiking in areas where I know that I'm likely to come across snakes. If, you're not, if you are wearing shorts, or even if you are wearing long pants and know you're going to be in a, a very area that's very heavily snake infested, uh, wearing gaiters is also a good, uh, uh, a good idea as well. Wear solid footwear, uh, particularly in areas where you know snakes are going to be present. Uh, don't walk off the trail or through long grass unless you have the right protective gear. So again, I'll give you an example of this in the Larapinta Trail last year. Uh, Jill and I were the only two people that were traveling um, in the same direction who didn't see a snake. We had people, we had one guy who was traveling with us for half the trail who saw a snake. <laughs> we had people who were traveling behind us who saw snakes. Uh, and this was also the same situation on the, on the overland track this year. We didn't see any snakes at all, uh, but much larger groups with lots of people did. Uh, and people travelling solo did, but, but for whatever reason, we just didn't come across them. Maybe we're just not that observant. 
It could have also been because we were, we we tended to leave the uh, the accommodation or the huts first in the morning, so it was a bit cooler. So the snakes are less likely to be out in the cooler in the very cool parts of the morning. Um, use tracking poles, particularly in the where there's dense undergrowth. So if you're having to walk through long grass or the trails overgrown. You may not need the tracking poles, but it's a good mechanism to brush the grass and um, hopefully give a bit of warning to anything that happens to be sleeping or slithering across the trail in front of you. And lastly, be careful about where you put your hands. So if you're collecting firewood or putting your hand down a hole to look for something, make sure you know what's in there. Now, snake bite, however unlikely, can possibly happen. What do I do if you so what do you do if you if a snake bites you? Now the Australian Snake Bite Project, which we've included a link to in our show notes, has determined that approximately 52% of bites were to the lower limbs. So unless you're trying to handle snakes, this is where, as a hiker, you're likely to be bitten. While snakes don't always inject venom, so particularly adult snakes, you'll often get what's called a dry bite. Um, it's better to assume that if a snake has bitten you, that the, it has actually injected venom and treated as such. The recommendations are do not clean or wash the wound, do not try to suck the poison out, and don't discard the clothing. Um, now, the reasons for all this is that you may not see the snake, you may not know what the snake is, uh, and they'll need to determine what that is to administer the right antivenin. So in that situation, they'll test the skin, they'll test the clothing around the area, uh, and certainly trying to suck the poisoning out, all you're likely to do is, apart from washing the poison off the skin, the person trying to suck it off is likely to swallow the poison as well. Stay calm and stay still until help arrives. Uh, Minimise the movement you're creating. The more you move, the more you're pumping the poison around the system. Apply pressure remobilisation. And essentially, everybody who bushwalks in remote areas in particular should have first aid training and know how to apply pressure immobilization to themselves and to others, in addition to knowing how to manage shock and any other issues that may arise. Call for help either through your phone, whether it be a mobile or a satellite, or activate your personal locator beacon. And we've already discussed um, a, a planning uh, hikes in, in earlier in an earlier podcast, but basically, if you're hiking solo or you are hiking um, in a group in a remote area, you really should be carrying a personal locator beacon. The Australian Snake Bike Project uh, indicated that it's approximately about four and a half hours between getting bitten to the time the antivenin is actually given, and that's allowing for either someone carrying you out so you don't have to move or a rescue uh, service coming in and picking you up. And the antivenines are actually held in the larger hospitals or in the more regional hospitals where snake bite's going to be an issue. Without handling the snake, try and determine what it was that actually bit you uh, as far as you can. So again, did, did it have a black back and a red belly? Did it seem to have uh, stripes on it? Uh, you may not be able to tell uh, if you can take a photo, but again, don't try and endanger yourself or anyone else to go through and do that. Um, that's, that may certainly help, but they will certainly test to see what sort of snake you've been, been bitten by. Many websites also suggest marking your skin where the bites occurred. So it may be that if you're by yourself, you may not be able to respond to rescuers when they come and pick you up. So 
putting a pen around uh, the area saying this is where I've been bitten uh, is often something that's suggested in a number of the sites. So really what it comes down to as far as snakes go, it's unlikely that you are going to get bitten, uh, but when, uh, you need to go through and plan for what happens when you come across a snake on the trail, not if. Um, it's If you're hiking on a very regular basis, it's more than likely that you will come across snakes, um, uh, uh, and certainly Jill and I do on a regular basis. In most cases, just appreciate the, the natural fauna and keep a distance from it. And in the unlikely event of a bite, you should know what to do and how to help others. The next creature we're going to talk about is ticks. And for me, this is the thing, or this is the, the, the creature that I they most hate. I just, I don't, I'm not a big fan of parasites of any particular type. Uh, I don't really like ticks. Uh, and ticks are basically part of their spider family. Uh, so they unsurprisingly tend to elicit the same sort of response in, in many people as spiders do. They feed on the blood of both humans and animals. And if left untreated, can cause serious medical issues depending on the type of the tick and the individual concerned. In Australia, we have approximately 70 species of ticks and 16 of these are reported of feeding on humans. Uh, the real tick problem for us tends to be the paralysis tick, uh, which is responsible for around about 95% of tick bites and tick-borne illnesses in eastern Australia. And really all that you need to know about them is that ticks will usually stay on vegetation not far off the ground. So in most cases, for waiting for animals to wander past and they hitch a ride, and then using their sharp, sharp mouth parts, they pierce the skin and start feeding off the blood. And to do this, they actually inject an anticoagulant as well as saliva, and this is where the health issues tend to occur. In the United States, one of the big issues that you often will tend to hear about is Lyme disease, uh, and there's a lot of debate about whether Lyme disease is present in Australia. It hasn't yet been proven that it is, or, or in fact that it isn't. Um, but we do have our own tick-borne illnesses to deal with. And one of the ones that uh, uh, is becoming a problem more recently is a thing called tick-induced mammalian meat allergy. And what that basically means is what it sounds like is that it creates an allergy for meat, red meat and meat byproducts. Uh, and this, the people that it affects can no longer eat red meat anymore or things like gelatin. Uh, so it's not a particularly, th particularly thing you'd want to actually get, particularly if you're a meat lover. Now, one of my claims to fame is that I'm a tick magnet. I don't think you should be <laughs> <laughs> promoting that, but anyway. Uh, and no, this is, no I, 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 that's not a mispronunciation, because up until a few years ago, if I was walking through a tick-infested area with a group of people, without fail, I would be the one that would find ticks. And partly this was to do with the fact that I used to wear shorts and short sleeve shirts. So over the past few years, I've changed my hiking practices, uh, and it's very rare for me to have any issue with ticks. Uh, but although a few months ago, uh, and again, this was in July, so it was, it was in wintertime, the coolest part of the year, I did manage to uh, physically pick up two ticks as I was walking through a bushland area, uh, just cutting across uh, from one area to another. I wasn't hiking, it was just happened to be down the coast, uh, and uh, it wasn't until two days later I realised I had a tick where it wasn't itchy, but it just felt like there was something on my arm. Uh, and it actually managed to attach itself uh, on my arm where I had a tattoo, so it wasn't actually visible. 
the second tick, uh, which was actually reasonably close by and again fairly tiny, uh, I, I didn't actually realize till about a month later that it was actually there. So ticks on the east coast of Australia are often present in warmer, more humid coastal regions. And this is where I managed to pick up my two ticks, uh, which was in the southern coastal New South Wales. And thankfully, by the look of it, they were probably in the, the juvenile or the nymph stage. Okay, so how do you avoid ticks? Uh, so as we've as I've already mentioned, wear long pants, preferably tucked into your socks, which looks a bit silly. But again, if you're, if you're in an area where it's long grass and you know there's a lot of ticks, it's worthwhile. Wear a long sleeve shirt. Wear light-coloured clothing so you can actually see the ticks that might be on the outside of your clothes. Apply a DEET-based insect repellent, particularly to exposed areas of the skin. And do a regular entire body check for ticks. Now, ideally have someone who is fairly close to you do some very personal checks because they can actually attach themselves in the most inopportune areas. Uh, And as embarrassing as this may or may not be, if you're in an area where there's a lot of ticks, you prefer to actually get them out. Many years ago, I did have to remove a tick from a friend, female friend, uh, who somehow, I don't know how, ended up with a tick in her cleavage. So, yes, it can get a bit personal. <laughs> All right. So as far as removing ticks are concerned, the correct way to remove ticks is still heavily debated and you'll find that several websites and science-based organisations differ on their advice. So the advice we're going to talk about here is the advice from the New South Wales Health Department. So the process is to remove as early as possible, remove the tick with a fine tip forceps, not household tweezers unless it's a really fine tipped uh, point on it, Grasp the tick as close to the surface of the skin as possible and pull upwards with steady pressure, avoiding jerking or twisting. Because what you're trying to do is pull the tick out in one piece, uh, preferably without squeezing it uh, and without breaking the head off in the skin. Prior to removal, the tick can be sprayed with an aerosol insect repellent containing pyrethrin, Uh, although there's currently no no evidence to to suggest that this is a benefit. But pyrethrin-based creams, uh, you can get those from chemists. Uh, And the recommendation is to apply at least twice within one-minute intervals between applications. If you're having difficulty removing the tick or suffer any symptoms after removal, seek urgent medical attention because it could be one of the more serious tick uh, problems. And again, from our last uh, word perspective on ticks, when it, essentially what it comes down to is planning. Be aware of that you are travelling in areas where ticks are, uh, are known. Dress accordingly and do regular checks just to make sure you haven't picked up any passengers. And if you do so, remove them as carefully and as soon as possible. The last of the creatures we're going to talk about is spiders. And for most people, spiders don't even rate in the scheme of things as far as a worry from a hiker's perspective. And in fact, more deaths occur each year uh, in Australia by bee stings than from spiders. So for most Australians, not really an issue and something you, you probably don't have to worry about unless you are hiking or camping in particular areas. Now, the top of our poisonous spider list is the Sydney funnel web spider. And this is found in New South Wales in forests uh, and in populated areas as far south as Narra on the south coast and as far north as Newcastle. Uh, and the funnel web spider has larger fangs than a brown snake if their appearance wasn't scary enough. 
The male spiders tend to be the issue as they have a different toxin to the female. And this, this is the one or the, the species or the, the sex of the spider that has been responsible for all deaths to humans. The issue with the males is that they go wandering looking for mates uh, because the females tend to build a, a funnel-type web, uh, which is where they get the name from, in rotting logs and crevices. Uh, now, the good news is that since 1981, there have been no recorded fatalities. Now, if you're outside that area, uh, there are other species of funnel web spiders all up and down the east coast of Australia. And for me, um, I do a lot of camping in the Brindabellas, uh, uh, which is part of the Australian Alps uh, National Parks. Uh, and there are species of funnel web spiders in that park, and they are known to cause be, be cause serious damage to humans. Uh, and I've been hiking in uh, a Mount Bimbury, which I've mentioned earlier in this episode, and come across during the daytime in the warmer months of the year a male funnel web spider out wandering around over the rocks, obviously either looking for food or a mate. In talking to some of the rangers from that area, uh, they relayed to me a story of a group of experienced scouts who were doing a uh, tarp camping weekend uh, and who ended up coming back very early because they'd set up their tarps to camp for the night only to have a number of these male funnelweb spiders go crawling through their, their sleeping gear and over the top of where they were planning on camping. So they didn't tend to last too long in that site. Uh, so really what this sort of means is you, know, you need to know that these things are there and take precautions. So to avoid spiders, most of it's pretty straightforward. Don't stick your hands into crevices or hollow logs. You may get a surprise. If you are camping in areas where funnel web spiders are common, sleep in an insect-proof uh, shelter and always, always check your footwear before putting them back on. Certainly for me, if I'm camping in areas where I know that the, the funnel web spiders will be present, the, the boots stow inside the tent, um, or, in, or in the chance, on the off chance where they are outside, I will bang them quite heavily to make sure nothing has crawled in there overnight. It's just good practice. I'd also recommend don't leave your pack in the open, as you, again, the male spiders may go wandering in there at night time and you may not find them until you open up the packs. We've already mentioned having first aid training, and this applies to knowing how to deal with funnel web spider bites, um, or even just other spider bites as well. So funnel web spiders, the treatment is pressure immobilization, and once you get to hospital, it's antivenin. Uh, so similar sort of treatment to what you're doing for snakes. Our other poisonous spider that most people know, the redback spider, usually doesn't cause people a problem unless there's pre, uh, pre-existing medical conditions. Um, and the recommendation here is not to use pressure immobilization, but cold compressors. Now, the issue with this when you're hiking is you typically don't carry cold compressors with you. Uh, but really what you want to do is check in your local uh, state health authority for treatments of spider bites that may be specific to your particular uh, area. So as I said, spiders aren't usually an issue for most hikers. However, if you know you're camping in an area where funnel webs are present, take precautions to make sure that you're not going to come across them and know what to do. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, this is going to be the first time we do Hiker News on the Australian Hiker Podcast. And as mentioned, it'll be the first first regular episode of each month where we do this. Uh, This is a, a... 
going to be a take on news that's appeared in uh, the media to do with hiking and bushwalking um, in Australia and also in overseas to see if there's some sort of pattern or some sort of issue going on that, that people need to be aware of. Now, over the last uh, couple, last month, we've had a couple of instances that are similar, uh, but we've had similar outcomes for both of them. One was in Queensland, where two hikers who uh, headed off for a walk, changed their mind partway through, got lost, uh, and they actually had a radio with them. They contacted back to their camp to let people know they were lost and didn't know where they were. Uh, the people back at the camp set off the personal locator beacon. Uh, they were found and located. In the second instance, in the ACT, um, a hiker who was hiking solo uh, tripped and actually broke her ankle uh, and uh, was lucky enough that her mobile phone was in range and she managed to call for help. Uh, in this instance, they uh, uh, they walked in, found her, uh, they had to move her to a, a more open area so the helicopter could take her out uh, and get her out of there. And it was a bit of luck in that instance because the area she was in doesn't have particularly good phone coverage. Uh, and if she had have been in that sort of situation, they didn't report whether she had a personal locator beacon or not. Now, the lesson from both of these instances really relates to having backup uh, available. In the, in the case of the Queenslanders, they had a radio where they were able to contact someone to set off a locator beacon. In the second instance, uh, the person had a mobile phone that was able to call. But really, if you're going to be hiking solo in particular or going somewhere remote, you need to have that backup form of communication, whether it be in the form of a satellite phone, a radio, or a personal locator beacon. One of those things you may actually need it at some point. Okay, so that's all for Hiker News for this month, uh, and we'll be reporting again the beginning of November uh, with our next batch of news on, on what's been going on on the trail. That's all for today's episode as well. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed. Our next episode in two weeks' time, which will be our next regular episode, will be hiking and backpacks. We're going to go through and look at the anatomy of backpacks and how to choose backpacks for, for hiking. So as usual, you can download these podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or our website. And if you have time, please go through and rate us on iTunes to help get the message out there. That's all for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now. And bye from me.